Welcome to the Intentional House Podcast. Here, it's all about creating beautiful homes that actually help families love better. Here's your host, the home coach herself, Carly Thornock. Hey, homies, it's Carly. So glad you're here. This is the official podcast of Intentional House, where we think it's fun to renovate and grow relationships at the exact same time. Today, I have a very special guest for you, my favorite Very special. Very special. Very handsome. Chase, my husband, is here to chat with us today. Our topic is our stimulation set point and neurobiology. This is somewhere where Chase really excels, and I'm so excited to get into it with him for you. But before we get started, let's talk about a little lifesaver of the week, because, you know, we all got to help each other out. When something exciting happens around the house and we find the perfect little gadget, that's kind of fun, right? And this week, I got a new jar of peanut butter. And we like to buy the peanut butter that doesn't have any of the the chemicals, preservatives. And with that peanut butter, there's a lot of oil separation. So anytime you get a new jar of peanut butter, you have to stir in the oil. And it takes superhuman Hulk strength and stamina to do this. So I think I saw maybe on Instagram, Pinterest, I don't even know, saw somebody taking one blade of their hand mixer and putting it in their peanut butter jar and using the mixer to mix the oil into the peanut butter. And I thought, that sounds genius. I'm going to give it a try. So I opened up my jar of atoms and I put in my mixer blade and I turn it on and oil splattered all over the kitchen and all over me. So now we are a well-oiled machine. And I know that you have to hold the jar like your life depended on it before you turn on the mixer. That is the key. When I figured that out, it worked like a charm. So there you have it. Use your blender, use your hand mixer to mix up your peanut butter. Hold on to that jar genius. What has been your little lifesaver? Send me an email, carly at intentionalhouse.com. I would love to hear yours and ask me any house questions you have. I am here for you. I love it. And when we learn from each other, then our growth is exponential. Okay. The moment you've all been waiting for, the moment Chase has been waiting for sitting cuddled next to me around our shared microphone. We're actually in our storage room right now because it gets the best, uh, how do you say this, Chase? Acoustic quality? Absolutely. So we're sitting on the floor surrounded by our Christmas boxes. I hope that paints a good picture for you. It's cozy. It's fun. And we're going to get to it. So I can't feel my legs. It's, it's been three minutes and we might be tapping out. Uh, okay. So we're going to be talking about optimal stimulation today. What this means is that every person has a point in their biology where they become overstimulated. There's also a point where they become bored. So imagine that your neurobiology, your reaction to the world with your body is like a teeter-totter and you have a set point that keeps it balanced. This is like the axle of your teeter-totter, the axis. Axle, axis. One and the same. Mm. Yeah, the, the triangle that we are balancing on. And this optimal stimulation set point is where you are neither bored, neither are you overstimulated. So there's a working Stimulation set point where you're trying to focus and you're trying to get things done and you need um, this amount of stimulation, this amount of quiet. Okay. And then we also have like what I would call your everyday relationshiping set point where you're just hanging out. There's nothing really going on. And frequently those are different for the same person. Sometimes they're the same. But all you want to do with optimal stimulation set point is figure out yours figure out your husbands and your kids. And we just want to have a conversation about what we can do to both 
um, find that optimal stimulation set point and live in that realm, but also understand that you can adjust your stimulation set point and that's completely um, within our power of control. So this looks like for moms, having kids touch you all day and having the oil of the peanut butter explode all over your clothes and having the floor sticky and then people trying to talk to you. Maybe five people trying to talk to you all at the same time, tell you stories, have your attention. Um, This may or may not feel overstimulating to you and you may or may not run to the bathroom to try to escape and have some moment of like solace in your day every so often. And if we don't take cues from our stimulation inputs with our biology, how our body's responding, if we can't process this through, then that usually leads to a reaction of sorts. So we end up getting angry or we freeze and we can no longer handle, no longer function, or we flight. We end up in the bathroom with the door locked with chocolate in our iPhones, right? So uh, we just want to understand what's going on. Why do you care about knowing this? Because when you know your optimal stimulation set point, it's like your eyes open up to what's going on. No longer do you feel controlled by everything that's surrounding you. No longer do you feel at the mercy of crumbs on the floor or at the mercy of screaming children. These things are just going to happen. They're just part of life. But when you understand how you react to them and when you choose how to react to them, then you are in the driver's seat of your life and you can control uh, these reactions that before you might have felt like were just happening to you. We're beyond your control. What do you have to add, Chase? What does optimal stimulation look like for dads? Well, I think it's kind of an interesting idea because much like our physical health, I once heard the saying that your genetics load the gun and your environment pulls the trigger, right? You're kind of dealing with that here where biologically, I think you have a a specific set point and that varies with all of us, but you also have environmental stuff. So we've all noticed this. If you're tired or if you're hungry, then we tend to be more irritable and it usually ends there in the discussion, but actually what's happening is that you tend to be more sensory reactive. And so the more stimulus that you're having, again, depending on your set point and depending on your biology at the moment, are you tired? Are you hungry? Are you stressed? That set point tends to um, fall a little bit. So, so things that normally wouldn't overstimulate you end up overstimulating you. Yeah. Another way I like to think about it is like a bucket. If you have a an emotional stimulation ability to handle bucket. (laughs) I don't know how you describe that. A bucket of your capacity for holding stimulation. And if you're hungry, that's going to fill up your bucket a certain percent. And if you're tired, that's going to fill up your bucket a certain percent. And if you're in pain, that's going to fill up your bucket another percent. And there are some people who have just the bottomless pit of sensory ability. They can be in a screaming stadium and still be like writing their thesis for grad school. (laughs) It's no big deal. They can focus wherever, whenever. They can shut it out at a moment's notice. There are other people who feel like they have a thimble's worth of stimulus holding capacity where even the tiniest little drop will send them over the edge. And what I want to open our eyes up to the possibility of, we want to ask if it could be possible, is... We can expand our capacity to allow in stimulation, but we can also regulate how much stimulation we pour into the cup, into the bucket. Would you agree with that, Chase? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's the end that you have the most control over, right? If uh, if you recognize you just already have a set point, start from there, 
mm-hmm. recognize where that set point is, and then you start to list off the items that tend to move that set point. Uh, start with the most drastic items, right? Things for me are, and for most of us, are sleep, tired, am I hungry? How bad does that swing those set points? And are there specific stimuli that, that, uh, that impact us more when we're in those states? Yes. Now, here is the cool, cool part. And this is where we really have a lot of power. It is the amount of energy we put in to how we're interpreting these stimuli. So often, it's not that we just have our buckets full of tiredness already. It's not that we're just tired. And that's why we're overflowing. Our sensory is overflowing. Um, But more that we're bothered that we're tired and we're frustrated about being tired. If we were just tired, often, we'll just go take a nap. We can just take care of ourselves. There's very little drama. There's very little sensory overwhelm about it. But it's when we're trying to push through. It's when we're not, we're not, we can't take care of our own needs. There's something that needs to be done. We have to show up and wake up and all these, these pressures that we put on ourselves. And we're interpreting tiredness to be overwhelming. And that overwhelm is like fire hydrant into our buckets. That's what's going to overwhelm. Can we talk about the biology a little bit? Yeah, please. So, It's fun to think of our brains as the ultimate resource manager, right? Its job is to find resources. Its job is to spend resources efficiently in the effort to get more resources, right? That's what the brain does. Because resources equal life. That's how you survive. And then your your autonomic nervous system is responsible for allocating those resources. So brain preserves and find resources, Autonomic nervous system allocates resources. And where this comes into play with sensory stimulation is once you hit that set point of sensory stimulation where you start to get overstimulated, essentially the brain starts to see that as a threat uh, and your body switches over to fight or flight. So what your brain is saying is this thing that's going on, this stimulation, maybe it's a child screaming at you. This child screaming at me is becoming enough of a threat to my future resources that I'm going to going to position my current resources to solve the problem. And the way that your body solves problems when it decides to get involved is it fights or it runs away or it freezes or you like fawn, mm-hmm. right? Fawning over people or things. Like people pleasing, you get out your performer. Right. And the brain then is considering if I put resources towards this now, I can get it to go away or I can go away, thus preserving future Life resources. Really is what your brain is thinking. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to die. So yep. I better live because I'll sti- cope. All, all sensation is stimulation, right? Whether it's pain or whether it's noise or whatever. Um, and your body eventually starts interpreting it as a dangerous stimuli. Yeah. It could also be based on conditioning, right? If you had something traumatic in your past that your brain has associated with danger or trauma, then that stimulation is most likely to lead you to overstimulation more quickly. For instance, Chase's dad served in Vietnam. Yes. Is that what it was? Yep. Um, So he was a soldier for a while. And when Chase was little and would come into their bedroom at night and say, hey, dad, he would be on his feet. And have Chase in an like arm bar, <laughs> headlock, before he could even like get out what the problem was. Scared Chase half to death. I love those stories. Like, you scared each other half to death, probably. Absolutely. Because to your dad, that small stimulus when he's asleep, these factors all added up to equal in his mind 
attack. So he responded appropriately to that attack that he was feeling. And the problem becomes, and the problem that we experience is when we can't seem to get enough stimulation, nothing is grabbing our focus. This is like classic ADD kind of stuff. Or we are overstimulated to the point where we shut down. Both extremes of this teeter-totter result in shutdown. Um, So we are being stimulated by so much in our environment. We have screens, we have headphones, we have people that are actually in our physical lives. But at the touch of a button, we can have all the light that we ever want. We can have all the sound we ever want. We can have all the communication we ever want. And there's a never-ending stream of internet always accessible. So we want to fine-tune our stimulation so that we can show up for the people that we love and for ourselves. We want to prioritize relationships because at the end of the day, that's what we're going to be able to take away from our life. I think that's another fascinating thing about the biology is that when we have those experiences of a fight-or-flight response, that's a deep activation of your sympathetic nervous system. In order to calm that down, you have to have an activation of your parasympathetic nervous system. And parasympathetic is branch of, it's part of that sympathetic nervous system. And so the most effective way for us to complete that process, uh, having a sympathetic response to a parasympathetic response and then back to homeostasis, balance between the two, is by connecting with other people through social connection. Like actual connection. Right. Not that's just why observing. We crave, that's yeah. why we crave social media because A, it's it's not, uh, it's more accessible, I think, right? It's, it's sometimes harder to be vulnerable with people and say, I'm having a hard time. Um, but it's enough, it's close enough to the real thing that we get a dopamine hit, right? And so we think, oh, I feel a little bit better, but you're actually not feeling better. You're just feeling less you're just dissociating <laughs> from what you're feeling. And so and so that reinforces that behavior. And then by the end of it, you're at what's called dorsal collapse, where basically you are dissociated from yourself, dissociated from people around you. This is like laying in your bed with the pillow over your head kind of a state. And so the beautiful thing about that, though, is you cannot have a parasympathetic ventral vagal response instead of a dorsal collapse kind of experience, ventral vagal is a connective experience. You can't have that without the fight or flight experience. So it's this really cool process, but it, the, the process needs to complete. So it's leading you to social connection and social interaction. Just don't fall for their, kind of the counterfeit of that. Yeah. And isn't that beautiful that in order to connect with our people, we need to be triggered by them? Or, are right, we know that people don't really trigger us. We know that they are just circumstances in our lives that are neutral and we're allowed to be triggered or not. That's always up to us. But it's almost like children come with this little package of, I'm going to stimulate my parents' sympathetic nervous system. And in so doing, we will together bond. Well, and you can see it with children. Children are a really good example. Just the other day, well, I mean, it happens daily, right? One of them falls and hurts themselves. What's the first thing that they do? They want to go to a trusted person and be held. And the reason why that's so important to a child and to an adult is because that holding synchronizes our nervous systems together. And so my heart rate and their heart rate start to synchronize. Our breathing rates start to synchronize. Every kid's had that experience where you're laying on your dad's chest or your mom's chest and you can hear their heartbeat. 
and you're not sure if it's your heartbeat or their heartbeat that you're hearing. And the answer is yes, you're hearing both because of the magical pathways of that vagal nerve, the ventral branch of the vagal nerve that help our systems to calm down and return to homeostasis. And that only takes 30 seconds. When you're in 30 seconds of contact with another person, your systems start to sink. So if we're talking about being overstimulated, what you need is real life interaction with people. And I think women like to do this verbally. We like to chat it out. We like to talk about our problems. We like to really connect with words. And men are very experienced, physically oriented to connect with one another. And there and it can be done either way. Yeah, it can, it can, be, done it can be done a lot of way. different ways. Tons yeah. of different ways. And there's actually some really interesting marriage and relationship research that points to like rekindling the fire in your marriage via new experiences, doing things that stimulate this cycle over and over again so that you, you're just awake again to one another, which is which is really cool. So we kind of want to talk about how we can use our house and the things within it to to both embrace the sympathetic response and also embrace the parasympathetic response. So I don't think we have to look very far to be triggered by our houses. <laughs> I, I love that you said that, by the way, because neither one of these is good or bad, right? They are just part of your biology. So I think there's a tendency to look at the sympathetic fight or flight response once you know a bit about it and be like, oh, I don't want to do that. But the whole process is really, really important. And a fine balance between the two is critical for you. Sorry to interrupt. No, it really is. And recognizing that you are going to be put into a fight or flight state by the people that you love most and nothing's gone wrong. That's really liberating. And that's how you connect with people. That's the way you can. It is the path. Yeah. Yeah. It's the point. It's the car that gets you from point A to point B. So over Christmas this year, a few things happened. I interpreted the world in certain ways that are conditioned for me. And I ended up overwhelmed for a minute and Chase was holding me. I like recognized enough about myself that I re- recognized I'm overwhelmed. My my frontal lobe has kind of turned off. I need a hug. I need some connection and I need to breathe for a second. So he was holding me and I breathed for a second and then I was okay. And I was back. Like it was it was a quick turnaround. And you know, I was telling a friend about this, like, I only cried once. That's great. What a great Christmas. And she's like, oh man, I wish Christmas has never had tears. And that's such a great idea. Like it, it feels so good to wish for never having hard experiences like that. But as I'm learning more and more about feeling into emotions, I'm recognizing that all of the emotions are so important. It's so important to feel sad when you feel sad and to not uh, shame yourself and fill up your your cup of feeling with shame instead of just the the raw, clean, true emotion you're feeling. Because when you can feel, it all moves quickly, usually. So around your house, you're probably stimulated into your sympathetic response fairly often. There's people, there's toys with batteries. Who invented toys with batteries? Can there's I please Legos have a conversation? On there's, floors, there's Legos on hardwood floors. With bare feet. There's food. There's dishes. There's laundry. There's beds. There, I mean, everywhere you look, there's an opportunity to interpret the world in a way that makes you feel like you're under attack. We would love to condition ourselves to not interpret the world to feel under attack. That's great. But it's going to happen. And so when we embrace the inevitability of it, then we can move through the cycle to our parasympathetic what would you say, Chase, is some of the best ways around the house, easily accessible, using the props that we have in our home uh, to ramp up our parasympathetic system so that we return to homeostasis? Yeah, I think, well, 
I, I think it's so cool to think about the intentional house cycle, right? That you teach, which basically the, the house is this living, moving, breathing entity that goes through these different stages. Human beings are exactly the same way. So by mirroring kind of our, our biology onto the intentional house model, that's what gives you the opportunity to see the world a bit differently, right? And so a good example, essentially what you're looking for is you're looking for the stimulus, right? That leads to the sympathetic response. Then there needs to be a recognition that that's happening. Awareness is really important. And then the next step has to be doesn't have to be, but ideally is some sort of a connective social experience. So a good example of this may be me walking around in bare feet and I step on a Lego. Now, one approach is to make sure there's never any Legos on the floor, right? That's one way to do it. But then I've avoided the entire cycle, right? And you don't come out of your room because how can you even control that? <laughs> you control that. <laughs> there's no way. Okay, the next the next piece is to step on the Lego and to recognize that I'm having an emotional response to that, that I've injured myself stepping on a Lego and I'm having a response. So then the, the following step would be to find the social interaction. And the best thing, I think, is just to tie it closely to the experience so you don't have to think too hard about it. And so a clear pathway there would be like inviting my boys to play with the Legos or inviting them to come and help me clean them up in a kind way, right? Uh, something that's connective. And you can do the same thing with dishes. You see that huge pile of dishes over there and it's like, oh, I don't want to do this. What is a way that we can make that connective? How can we invite others to, uh, to join us? And that might be someone helping us do dishes or maybe that's a phone call with someone who you haven't talked to in a long time uh, while you're doing the dishes. Or maybe it's even yourself where you're like, great, I'm going to take this minute to connect to myself. That's a really important relationship that can often provide what we need in terms of calming down and getting back to homeostasis as well. And what you call those connection vignettes, yep, right? I do. And, you know, you can even use the negative experience, the negative emotion to connect with people. Like you don't have to be out of your negative emotion to invite connection. So, for instance, in that example that Chase gave, which is brilliant, you step on the Lego and you say, ah, I just stepped on a Lego. And then if you're in a connection mindset, you're looking for connection. It's like, somebody, I need a kiss on my owie, like we do with our little kids. And our kids or are great. At, or I need a band-aid. Yeah. They come running. What happened, daddy? What happened? They get a band-aid on you. And you're, you don't have to like shove away your pain. But the pain itself can be the catalyst for connection. It's tempting for us to have pain and disconnect. Ah, I stepped on a Lego. Get away from me. What are all these Legos? Shame, shame. Get away from me. I'm scared. Instead of leaning into it, this feels like pain. I can do pain and connection at the same time. The pain, Isn't that the goal? That I mean, is the like, goal, that yeah. That is like, that's amazing. We call it empathy and agony. That's what my dad calls it. Isn't that fun? Where you're able to feel your feelings, but also see outside of yourself at the same time, honoring both. It's not shoving your feelings. It's not shoving other people, but it's holding this this like suspension that is both pain and connection. And it's powerful. Beautifully said. All right. So let's talk a little bit about set points of the family and how they vary and what that looks like. For some of you, you might have a super sensor in your family. And I want to talk about this for a minute because Chase is our super sensor. I thought that I was um, aware like I'm so sensitive. Highly uh, 
sensitive to stimulation, but Chase has shown that he can smell better than anyone I know. He also can taste better than anyone I know, which makes him a fantastic cook. And it also makes me feel very safe because I know if we ever have a gas leak, like it's going to be great. He's going to wake up. We're all going to be fine. (laughs) But also that makes some things around the house a little bit challenging, specifically with kids. I remember bringing our baby, our first baby home and Chase was like, I'm ready. (laughs) He pulled out like surgical gear. (laughs) He had gloves and masks and the whole thing, but he was very willing to engage, but it just took a little bit more preparation than I think I needed just because our stimulation set points are a little bit different when it comes to things like that what do you want to say super sensor (laughs) i mean it sounds like a superpower and i'm grateful for it in a lot of ways but it can be really challenging if you're dealing with someone who is a high sensitive person or maybe that person is yourself um i mean it took us years to kind of figure out the differences there and there's differences already right and that can create friction and we call them pet peeves Um, But what pet peeves really are, are just the areas of our nervous system that are kind of finely tuned to a specific stimuli. When we receive that stimuli, we interpret it as a threat quicker than we would in other stimuli. And so it's a challenging thing. Um, They estimate, what, 20% of people are kind of high sensitives. And there's some great literature and studies and books about it, I think, that are useful uh, for people to look into uh, if you think you may be this way. Um, the highly sensitive person, the highly sensitive child. Super helpful. Chase read the first chapter of this book and he was like, oh, they know me. I didn't realize this was me, but they know me. And the idea is, is that you're just taking in a bit more data. You're, you're not able to filter out as much data as um, as other people are. Right. And at the far end of that spectrum, you have autism, like autism kind of spectrum disorders where the brain is taking in just so much information and less able to filter it out. So all of us have different levels of being able to filter that stuff out, but knowing that about yourself is useful. Knowing what those items are is useful because then you can have discussions around them. Uh, For example, like smacking noises, that kind of stuff, right? (laughs) That one's hard for me. That one's kind of intense for me. So you can pick some of those things out and know them about yourself, know them about your partner, know them about your children. And when they happen and that person starts to slip into fight or flight and their frontal lobe starts to shut off, we can recognize that it's happening and make efforts to connect with each other rather than um, sometimes the temptation of ridiculing each other for, for some of our idiosyncrasies that way. I like that there's a trend right now about embracing neurodiversity. And this is exactly what we're talking about, where somebody's strength in their... N- their neurosensing is going to be another person's weakness. And when we each have our own strengths, that's when we really work together powerfully as a team. So it's not that one is better than the other. It's just that they're different. And throughout time, societies have really flourished with their high sensitives because they're the first ones to notice danger and to to recognize season changes and uh, environmental clues and cues, which are imperative for a society to survive. So this this is amazing. So we have sensory adaptability and we have strength and we have emotional awareness and there's just so many strengths that this doesn't have to be a, a point of contention. It can just be a talking point. Well, and you saw this in your in your master's program. You guys had I I don't know if it was fun. I think it would be kind of fun, but you 
put you had a bunch of kids and you put like Velcro backwards on an apron and then had them do tasks. And you found that the more sensory reactive the child was, the less able they were able to focus on the task and or they would just have a complete meltdown. Mm -hmm. Yep. We did a sensory reactive study and it was amazing because something that really bothered some kids didn't bother other kids at all. And there was a big spectrum of um, reaction to both tactile, visual, and auditory stimulation. So just, you know, just be aware, experiment, see, see where you're judging people in your home where you're like, oh, they're so insensitive. They don't understand that if you chew with your mouth open, it's just rude. You can notice, oh, they don't even notice that isn't in their sensory profile right, right now, or they're so picky or they're so whatever it is. We'd like to judge each other when we're different. But instead, we can just say what is. Like, oh, they don't like that. Oh. And try to connect. And try to because connect, Because yeah. that's what will calm down the immune system. Tell me more. Not the immune system, the nervous system. That will calm down the nervous system to well, get you both in a better Immune state. system, too. Well, like, this is, is yes, all absolutely. related. Like, sure. if you're neurobiology, if you're too too far into the sympathetic stimulation and you aren't closing your cycles and you aren't reaching homeostasis consistently, you fall into autoimmunity. Absolutely. So this is super important to recognize so that you can keep yourself healthy and help your kids learn about their bodies and their brains in really amazing, amazing ways. So overstimulation, when you recognize you're in that point of overstimulation, when you have been triggered, it's like a flashing arrow in the direction of understanding disembodiment and dysregulation. So not that you are dysregulated to have an experience where you're stimulated. It's totally fine to do that. But if we live in that area, we will stop associating with our bodies. Our our brains will interpret our bodies to be the enemy and we won't feel anymore. And this was um this has been my experience and I think it's also been Chase's experience with his Crohn's disease where he did he's had to relearn how to listen to his body. He's become dissociated because the world was threatening for a while. True? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you can understand these stimulation um, inputs and assimilate them on your own timetable, you're the boss, you're the one in control, and knowing that you have control over it, you can just toggle. You can toggle the levers. You can switch between paths. You can kind of figure out what works for you and ways you'd like to grow. And you're allowed to choose any of these things. Any parting thoughts for us, Chase? I think you've done a masterful job teaching about this. Well, thank you. I feel like you have been the key to it all. So thanks. Um, Love your kids. Love yourself. Take those breaks in the bathroom with a locked door. But instead of tuning out and looking on Instagram and looking outside to find the answers, just look inside. You have all that you need. You're a competent, wonderful person, and getting to know your body better is going to help you understand your house better and help you understand yourself better and help you understand and love everybody else around you in bigger, more meaningful ways. I will talk to you guys next time. I hope you have a very happy new year. And go get messy. Go make some big messes. I'll talk to you soon. Do you just love this podcast? There's even more housey homey family goodness to explore over at intentionalhouse.com.